Good morning. Glad you guys are with us today. It's good to see you this morning. If you are a guest with us this morning, thank you for spending your morning to worship the Lord with us this morning. Uh, as we continue in our um, the story series, as Mike had said earlier in the opening, uh, we will be going on to new creation this morning, what that means for the body of Christ. And we'll spend most of our time this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have your Bible with you, turn it on, flip to the page, ever how you get there. Go on ahead and probably head that way would be a good idea. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat pocket in front of you. Uh, please use it. Take it home with you. That is your gift uh, for us, from, from us. But uh, before I get started this morning, I just want to tell you about my week a little bit. It's been an awesome week for me personally. Um, don't want to brag. I hope you had a good week. Um, I did. Um, and a big part of that was just a deep dive into study in First Peter this week. Uh, going through this, God has just revealed um, himself to me through his word and reminded me that I am uh, one of his chosen people, a chosen son adopted through Jesus Christ. And it's not because of my doing, but it's because of him and his goodness. He's also reminded me in his word that I am kept as his son as well by his power and not my own, which gives me assurance because I know I fail daily. First Peter's been good for my soul. Uh, another reason this week has been special to me is because my wife and I have hit the six-week mark. Some of you all are probably like, what does that mean? Uh, we are due, she is due, to give birth to our fourth kiddo in six weeks. So we're at the six weeks, so it's like, man, you know, this puppy's real, this is happening. Um, with our first kid, uh, seven years ago, it was this period on that I took Pepto every day. Um, I'm doing better, I'm hoping to make it till about two weeks to go before that happens now. Um, another reason this week has been special to us is because our youngest, Chandler, uh, turns two today. So uh, he is two years old today, and uh, I think we're having a Sesame Street Elmo birthday party um, this evening. And then uh, one of the biggest reasons this week has been special is my wife and I had our wedding anniversary on Tuesday in which the Lord has blessed us with 14 years of marriage. And praise be to him for that. Um, and, and I've got to tell you in that, I married up. And you, those of you who know me well and know my wife, you know that's true. I'm not making any of this up. Uh, now, my wife's not perfect, okay? No one is, so I don't want to put her on an unfair pedestal or anything. But as far as I'm concerned, I married the best woman on the planet, uh, and I sincerely mean that. Uh, I just, every day, it just brings me joy to see her pursuit in, of Jesus and his word and in prayer, and how she loves our children and how she's patient with them, uh, how she puts up with me, <laughs> right? Very thankful for that. Uh, I'm also amazed every day by my wife's superpowers. And that's right, I said superpowers. And men, if you did not understand or did not already know this, your woman has superpowers. One of my wife's superpowers is that she can take all three kids to the grocery store by herself. Okay, I have tried this with two of our kids. It was a disaster. I don't know how she does it with three. And I'm serious. Like, I have gone to the grocery store to meet her. Like, I'm out and about my day, and she's at Target or Walmart or whatever, and I know I have time to go meet her, so I'll, meet, I'll go meet her at the store. And literally, she has got a buggy in this hand, pushing a buggy. She has got a stroller in this one. It's like I walk up on her. She looks like a train, like seriously, just kind of going around. And the kids, the kids are asking for everything in sight, everything they want, 
but it is nothing that is on my wife's list. And when I came up on her, I said, Honey, babe, I said, your punishment for sin in the fall was pain and childbirth. God didn't say you had to take all three to the grocery store. What are you doing? What are you doing? If you've ever gone to the grocery store with your children, you know what I'm talking about. You go there for eggs, bread, milk, coffee, and the kids are asking for everything under the sun. They promise they're going to eat the cereal this time. It has nothing to do with the toy. It has nothing to do with the movie character. It has nothing to do with the unicorn marshmallows. They just want this cereal that they've never eaten any other time you bought it. And you hear all the noise from your kids, and you're having trouble focusing on bread, milk, eggs, coffee, bread, milk, eggs, coffee. You're having trouble because of the distraction. And we spend more time arguing with our kids and wondering if other people are judging us. Now, let me tell you, the people who have never had kids are judging us. I was in that spot, right? Like, why don't they handle their business with their kid? What in the world? But then it's the people, like the nice older people who have kids, are like, oh, they're precious, bless that mom and dad. I love those people. I'd get affirmation from them in those moments. And we begin to get deterred from the things we really need and getting those things that we came to the grocery store for. And now we're in survival mode, right? We're in survival mode at the grocery store. And when we're in survival mode at the grocery store, we have three possible courses of action. Okay, three possible courses of action. We could spend more time arguing with our kids as we continue to go up and down the aisle to get what we need to get while we're being distracted and we're going to forget some things. And we're wondering if we're being judged. We are. Course of action option number two, we can leave the grocery cart right there with all the stuff in it and drag those kids out of the store. Now you all know you've either done it or you've thought about it. And when you think about it, you're looking like, is there any dairy in here? Because you feel bad if you leave the grocery cart there and it's got milk or ice cream, right? You feel bad. The other course of action, you could either just give in to your kids, right? Give them what they want so you can go through the store. Give them the Reese cup or the Snickers bar and they're eating it while you're going up and down the aisle and people are looking at you and you're like, I'm going to pay for it because you're trying to pacify them so you can get what you need to get. Now, you know that it's not always that bad when you take your kids to the store, but it can be difficult and distracting. But what's more distracting, what's more difficult for us as the body of Christ is to live in a world on purpose for Jesus, in a world that is in direct opposition to God and to God's people. It's distracting. If you're a Christian and a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you are currently living in a world that is not your own. You're living in a world that is constantly distracting you from resting in who you've been declared to be in Jesus Christ. And it's distracting you from fulfilling the purpose that King Jesus gave you when he called you and said, follow me. We get distracted from the fact that in Christ, we are a new creation. As Mike said in the introduction, and if you were here last week, Daniel did a really good job summing it up, is we're a new creation. Right, So we're a new creation. So if looking back to the original creation, God created everything good. He gave us everything good, mainly himself, or a direct relationship with himself. Right? And then man, we sinned. Right? We rebelled against God. And that created the fall. That was the fall. And there's been ramifications of the fall ever since. We live in a broken world. 
But then Jesus came on the scene, died on the cross for our sins, was resurrected, defeated death. And if we repent and believe in him, we have redemption and we are now a new creation. Praise be to God for that. And the beauty of the new creation is that God just did not release us from the power of sin. He's also making everything new. Everything. God offers new creation to those who place their faith in Jesus. He's given us new identities. He's making us his people. God is also making a new heaven and a new earth. You see, we, we look around today and we know that that's true, but we find it very difficult to continue to believe that and to rest in that and pursue Jesus in light of that. We find it difficult to do this because right now we're in that space in between what God has declared us to be and what he says will eventually happen. We live in a world that is still broken. We live in a world that still opposes God, rejects God, opposes his people. There's still cancer. There's still broken homes. There's still injustice and oppression. We still struggle with our own sin nature. We know things are not the way they're supposed to be, and we long for the day that they will be new again. And during this time, this in-between time, we, the body of Christ, those set apart by God to be his people, we've been given the task to enjoy God and grow in Christ's likeness. We've been given the task to love his people, the body of Christ. We've been given the task to go, make disciples by proclaiming the gospel to a lost world and investing in the lives of others. But even though we've been given this command in scripture, we find it difficult to rest in who we are in Christ and to pursue the role Christ has given us because we get distracted. We get distracted by our own sin nature, we get distracted by a world that's in opposition to God and opposition to his people. So as we come to 1 Peter this morning, this is exactly where we find the church in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Peter, the Apostle Peter, is writing to this church, right? This is the same Apostle Peter that Jesus called to be one of his 12 disciples. He was a fisherman, and Jesus called him out. This is the same Peter that walked on water. This is the same Peter that cut off the ear of one of the men who tried to arrest Jesus before his crucifixion. But even though he was ready to fight for Jesus at this moment, the next moment he was running away and denying Jesus three times out of fear. This is the same Peter that at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus looks at Peter and says, you're going to feed my sheep, you will be persecuted, and you are going to be killed and then in his next breath, he looks at Peter and says, follow me. Peter's writing to the Christians in Asia Minor who are made up of Gentile believers. Verse, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's referring to them as exiles, not because necessarily that they left their homeland. He's calling them exiles because they realize as God's chosen people, they are no longer a part of this world. They are foreigners in a world that is opposition to God. Verse 2, 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The recipients of this letter were set apart by God for salvation, and their inheritance was imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. God is sovereign in setting them apart for salvation. God is sovereign in setting them apart and holding on to them, keeping them in him. That is what is true of the church in Asia Minor that Peter is writing to. That is what is true of us today. Praise be to God. And he goes on to speak to the church in Asia Minor and to us today. Chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. The big truth that we were looking at today is that God's church exists to make him known. Now before we dive deeper into that truth, it is going to be helpful if we understand a few things first. If we go back up to verse 4 and 5, Peter says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through God. Through Jesus Christ. God's people, the church, are a chosen people. In verses 4 and 5, Peter refers to God's chosen people as living stones who God has chosen for himself, who are precious to him and to whom God has given value. Not because their value is found within them, but because they are in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself is precious and valuable to our Heavenly Father. God did not choose his people because there was value in them. He chose his people because he loved his people. He chose his people and gave them the value that he sees in Jesus Christ. It's not based on who they were. It's based on what Jesus has declared them to be. Let me give you an example. If I were cleaning out my closet, right? If I were cleaning out my closet and I offered you a pair of Nikes that I'd had for five years and said, hey, how much are you going to give me for these Nikes? You're probably going to be like, man, you keep your stinky shoes, man. I ain't, I'll give you $5 to get them out of my face, right? But if I come to you and say, hey, LeBron gave me these Nikes after he took them off, after the game, and handed them to me, now those Nikes have value. Now you want to give me some money for the Nikes, right? It's, the shoe itself is not valuable. It's who owns the shoe, God's people are deemed valuable to God, not because of who they were apart from Christ, but because of who they are in Christ, because God's people are his possession. They're his chosen people. God's people are not considered precious because of their family history or ethnicity or race. They're declared precious because of whose people they are. They're God's people. 
God's chosen people, these living stones, as Peter refers to them, are declared to be valuable and precious because they belong to God in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Okay? Later in Peter, John, Peter's going to ex- explain that Jesus is, the corner, is our cornerstone, but he's a stumbling block for those who don't believe and who've rejected God. But God not only chooses his people, he's also building them up together. In verse 5, you yourselves are like living stones or being built up as a spiritual house to be holy, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God chooses his people, and then he starts to form them. He starts to shape them. He takes these living stones, and he starts to chisel away anything in them that's, that has imperfections, that doesn't look like Jesus. And he's taking the stones, and he's using them and constructing them and building them up for a special purpose. And he's placing these stones on a foundation that is Jesus Christ. He has a purpose for his people. Ephesians 2, 20 through 22, Paul writes this. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling house, a dwelling place for the God by the Spirit. God is building a spiritual house, a spiritual temple for his glory. And without a firm foundation in Jesus, the whole thing falls apart. Okay, let me give you an example. Okay, so we talked about the grocery store. My mom used to take me to the grocery store. And I remember this one time, we grew up in this little town of West Virginia, right? And we in our grocery store, it's probably about twice the size of this room right here. And there were some Pringles, right? So I'm sitting here asking for everything that's not on her list, right, like all kids do. And I see the Pringles, and you know, once you pop, you can't stop. You know, and I see these Pringles, and they're all stacked on each other to build like a pyramid, right? And I wanted some Pringles, and I wanted my mom to see that I wanted the Pringles. And the best way to do that would not be for me to ask the Pringles, but to bring her the can of Pringles. But rather than grab this can of Pringles, I grabbed this can of Pringles. And this part of the pyramid of Pringles went down. Now, I don't remember what my mom did. I blocked that out of my memory. But what I can tell you is we didn't leave with those Pringles. Without Jesus as the foundation we rest in, the whole thing's coming crashing down. God is building up his chosen people for a purpose. Chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. The church exists to make God known. The church is a royal priesthood. And this royal priesthood terminology, it's not talking about that the church is made up of individual priests. What Peter's talking about is collectively, corporately, as the body of Christ, we are a royal priesthood. He's going back to to terminology that was in the Old Testament with the Levitical priest. Though Israel was considered the people of God, it was only the tribe of Levi that were the Levitical priests. They were chosen to do the priestly duties. It wasn't just this person, that person, this person in the tribe of Levi. It was all of Levi. They represented the priesthood, right? Now, Peter is saying 
All of God's people are the priesthood. The veil has been torn. We have direct access with God. We come to God. We praise God, right? We offer spiritual sacrifices to God, not sacrifices to earn our salvation. That was one and done with Jesus Christ. He doesn't need anything added to that. But we live our lives in such a way that's pleasing to God and that displays Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. And just like the nation of Israel was to bless the nations and to proclaim the glories of God to the nations to bring them in, that's what we have been given the responsibility to. That promise has now been given to us. So just like the nation of Israel, we have been given the responsibility as the royal priesthood, as people chosen by God to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to all people and all nations. As a corporate collective body of Christ, the church, we proclaim the gospel both verbally and with our lives and how we build up one another. First Peter tells us that we use our spiritual gifts as the church. We use our spiritual gifts to build each other up. Second Timothy, Paul writes about that we should immerse ourselves in God's word. Why? Because God's word sanctifies us. It prepares us and helps us, the church, stand firm in the Lord. In Galatians, we see that we're called to bear one another's burdens. First Peter goes on in chapter 5 to say that we're to live with one another in submission, love, and humility. All of this being done as we verbally proclaim the good news of the gospel. But as we stand firm and immerse ourselves in God's word, as we do this, as we love one another well, as we care for one another, as we submit to one another, we display Jesus Christ to the rest of the world, a world that is lost and is blind, that is still in the darkness. And as we display Jesus Christ, we also proclaim Jesus Christ with our words. We see in this example in the book of Acts, we see the early church. We see that the early church were so devoted to the kingdom's cause. The early church wasn't just individual people. They were one common people with one common purpose, to proclaim the name of Jesus. They threw all their stuff in a lot together. They gave to all that was in need. They met daily, had meals together every day, talked about Scripture, taught each other Scripture, encouraged one another in Scripture admonished one another in scripture and together they went out to share the gospel they're a great example of that they saw and understood and knew what it was like to be a royal priesthood set apart chosen by god to proclaim his glory to the rest of the world the church is a royal priesthood the church is also a holy people we have been declared holy through Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us in Galatians 5 that it's not us who musters up our own holiness. We've been declared to be holy by Jesus, right? Because we're in him, so we're declared holy. And then we also see in Galatians 5 that it's the Holy Spirit doing a work, transforming our hearts and our lives so we become more like Jesus. So we start to become who God's already declared us to be. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Allow God to saturate your life. And when that happens and when God changes us, it presses out to us living a life that's more like Jesus Christ. The church is a holy people. But 
Why do we have to be reminded of that as the church? Why did the church in Asia Minor have to get a letter from Peter about this? I mean, think about this. The church in Asia Minor, at the time this letter was written, it was only about 30 years after Jesus was on the earth. It was only about 30 years after Jesus had a three-year ministry. He was crucified, resurrected, and ascended and said, go make disciples of all people of all nations. It was only been 30 years he, that he had said, all authority under heaven and on earth has been given to him. Just go. Go in my name. Why do they have to be reminded? They're reminded because they were starting to face some persecution. And this persecution was starting to distract them. And just like we struggle, struggle to remain focused at the grocery store with our kids to fulfill our purpose there, they struggled and were distracted to fulfill their purpose as a royal priesthood. And just like they were distracted in fulfilling their role as a royal priesthood, we struggle and we're distracted to do the same thing today when we face persecution and opposition. You see, just like us, they were facing a soft persecution. It wasn't government-sponsored. It wasn't um, locally by their government-sponsored. It wasn't anything like that. It was social persecution. They were starting to get ridiculed. They were starting to get made fun of. They were starting to get ostracized. They were starting to get kicked out of their social circles. And it was a distraction to them. They were facing persecution because they were proclaiming that Jesus was the only way to salvation. They were facing persecution because they denounced false gods. They were facing persecution because they claimed that their risen Savior was resurrected from the dead. And at that time in that culture, to the Jewish leaders, that was theologically heretical. And they were being made fun of and ridiculed. Does that sound familiar? At the time of Peter's letter, the persecution they were facing was social persecution. Today, we face the same thing. Here in East Tennessee, in America, we're starting to face some persecution. The, our country, our society, is no longer tolerant of Christian beliefs. It's no longer tolerant of biblical Christianity. Okay, We're starting to get made fun of. There's starting to be Facebook posts. People are putting stuff on Instagram. You're starting to get uninvited to things that you used to get invited to. You look different from the rest of the world. The church in Asia Minor, this wasn't really new to them because their Savior had been persecuted and, and crucified. But it's new to us. It seems new to us. That's why Jesus warned his disciples. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We have become accustomed to living in so-called Christian nation that the reality of persecution is something that we need to get used to. We've got to remember that Hebrews is, what was said in Hebrews is true of us. We are foreigners. We are aliens in this land. We are God's people. We are citizens of the kingdom. And the world is in direct opposition of God. 
We must learn how to endure unjust suffering in a society where biblical Christianity is unwelcome. But persecution is not just isolated to us. Persecution is happening all across the world at higher degrees, right? This past week, we had, uh, behind the message, we had some missionaries who've been out on mission who are back for a little while. They're going to go back, and they're in parts of the world where there's unreached people groups. And what I mean by unreached people groups is how we define it is less than 2% of the people in that country, within that people group, have any kind of access to hearing the gospel. And in fact, when you share the gospel over there, most times it's illegal for you to do so because their government imposes laws. And if someone comes to know Jesus and repents and believes and declares Jesus as Lord, it's not that they don't get invited to a party. It's not that somebody places something on Facebook that's unkind. They get killed. They get killed. Just like our Lord and Savior got killed. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, take up your cross and follow me. He knew this would happen. He knew that at some way, shape, or form, we would have to die to ourselves, die to our sin, follow him, face persecution. He explains that to us, and then he follows it up with, follow me. But the dominant reason for our lack of evangelism in America isn't the fear of death. We're not afraid of being imprisoned or tortured. We're afraid of being ignored and excluded and ridiculed. If we open our mouths in the... With the gospel, we run the risk of others thinking we're closed-minded. If we say that Jesus is the only way to salvation and that his very word is the handbook for everything in life, we're considered bigots. So instead of boldly proclaiming the gospel, we only speak the gospel a lot of times when we think it's appropriate. When we feel that someone's inviting us to share the gospel with them. We'll often bring up Jesus, so as long as it doesn't threaten our image. Church, if we're honest this morning, we're often ashamed of our Lord in a world that prides itself on individualism and relativism. More times than not, we look like the Peter that ran and denied his Savior in a world that opposes God. So just like the recipients of Peter's letter, we also feel pressured to take one of three courses of action. We feel pressured to just try to fit in and be like our culture. We give our kids the candy just so we can survive. Rather than being in the world but not of the world, we become of the world but not in the world as kingdom citizens, as a royal priesthood on mission. And to make ourselves feel obedient to the Great Commission, and comfortable with the world at the same time, we'll go on mission trips without declaring the gospel. We'll hand out food without declaring the gospel. We'll fight for social justice without declaring the gospel. Because it's fashionable and it's easier to replace gospel proclamation with social justice or good deeds as mission. But scripture tells us that good deeds apart from gospel proclamation does no good. We need to announce that all who are broken, hurt, and oppressed, suffering, that God is coming. He's coming back to make all things new, to make a new creation, and they can be a part of a world to where they are His, and He is theirs, and there is no more cancer, there is no abuse, there is no more slavery, there's no more struggles. But most of all, 
God is coming to redeem them from their sin in which they need to repent and believe. They need Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Another course of action that we may take is that we see the rest of the world and we decide to isolate ourselves from it. Things get bad, so we get in our holy huddle to protect ourselves from the outside world. Problem is, that doesn't work either because the real battle is within our own hearts. Juan Sanchez, an author, wrote this. Our battle is not against the unbelieving people of the world. They are our mission field. Our battle is against our own natural sinful desires and no amount of insulation from the world out there will leave behind our desires in here. Our fight is against sin and temptation, worldliness, and the devil, and that is a fight that takes place within us, not around us. So we need to ask the question to ourselves, am I actually warring against my own sin as I seek to love the world, those who are still in the darkness, or do I actually indulge my sin while looking down on the remaining aloof from the world? Church, hear me. Hear me. In our culture, we are starting to see a moral decline at exponential rates, okay? And in East Tennessee, in this side of the country, the Bible Belt, we often will see that, and it scares us, and we say things like, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I've got news. Genesis 3 tells us the world has been going to hell in a handbasket since the fall. God has called us to be a royal priesthood, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And in being called the royal priesthood, we don't fulfill that role by settling, sitting idly by and watching the world burn. As a royal priesthood, we proclaim the good news of the gospel for God's glory and for the salvation of lost souls, lost image bearers of God around us. That's why he's called us to do this. God is creating a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to make all things new. And you may be sitting here thinking, yeah, you're telling me I need to proclaim the gospel. I don't need to be in my holy huddle. I don't need to just be keeping to myself. But I'm just a kid. What am I going to do? Or I'm a mom with four kids. I can't even go to the grocery store. i got to do mobile order now, so I can't even go inside and like, talk to human beings. Or I'm old. Can't get around like I used to. Share the gospel where you're at. Share the gospel in your workplace. Share the gospel with your grandkids. Share the gospel in your school. If you're a college student, if you're young, take your college degree, whatever ambitions you have in life, take them and use them for the leverage of the gospel. Don't go get a job down the road making decent money. Go to a part of the world where you can leverage your college degree for the sake of the gospel. If you're old, position yourself. Go somewhere in your day to be able to share the gospel. Right? If you can't get around as much, then give. Give for the sake of the gospel. Right now we have two families. We're getting ready to send out to unreached people groups. And it takes money to get them there. So they've been raising money. The church has given them money. But they still need more money because it takes a little bit to go live in some of these places. But they're doing it for the sake of the gospel. Give to these families. Give to give to go. Give to go proclaim the good news of the gospel. That will have exponential effects by the power of the Holy Spirit for His glory. Another trap we often fall into when faced with persecution is we spend more time fighting those who oppose us than we do proclaiming Jesus with our words and our lives. 
We argue with our kids rather than doing what we came to do at the grocery store. We spend more time upholding the leaders of our political parties and sparring with those who are anti-Christian rather than proclaiming Christ. We often spend more effort fighting our religious freedoms than we spend effort on suffering like Christ. Now listen, it's not wrong to support legislation that protects the lives of the unborn. It's not wrong to support laws that protect the sanctity of marriage as God defines it. But when those things become the main thing, and we lose sight of the proclamation of the gospel, and loving people who are still in the darkness where we used to be, then we have missed the main thing. We have to keep our focus. We can't let these things cause us to be distracted. When faced with persecution from the opposing world, the body of Christ only has one real course of action. We must rest and rejoice in the fact that we are sovereignly chosen by God to be his people. We must rest and take refuge in the fact that we are sovereignly being kept for the power of God. We must stand firm in our faith and in his word, and we must remember that we have been set apart as a royal priesthood to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ. This same Peter that wrote to the church in Asia Minor, you can find a story of him throughout Acts, specifically the fourth chapter of Acts. We don't have time to go into it right now. But essentially, this same Peter and John and other apostles, they were arrested by the Jewish leaders of their time for proclaiming Jesus Christ, being Lord and Savior, and the, for the resurrected Christ. So they're arrested, right? And while they're arrested, the Jewish council is speaking to them and ridiculing them and threatening them. You know what Peter does, this Peter that wrote the letter? He shares the gospel with the people who are ridiculing him, who are trying to put them in jail. He shares the gospel, but they can't find a, a real charge, right, to, to keep him in jail. So they let Peter and they let John go. And then they threaten them some more and they say, stop, stop proclaiming Jesus. We're telling you to stop. And you know what Peter and John say? They say, listen, if it's against the law for us to proclaim the good news of God, you be the judge of that. But for me, I'm being obedient to the purpose God has given me, and I'm proclaiming the gospel. Peter and John didn't get distracted by the opposition. They proclaimed Jesus. Peter and John didn't take offense to the religious leaders treading on their religious rights. They proclaimed Jesus. Peter and John didn't give up and keep the gospel to themselves. They proclaimed Jesus. And then upon the release, they went back to their friends, to the early church, and told them all what happened. And then together they prayed. I want to read this prayer to you. It's just two verses. Acts 4, 29 through 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They lifted up their situation to God. They didn't ask God to take away their persecution. He, they didn't say take away our opposition. They didn't ask God to take away the threats. They just said just have regard of it. And in regard of the persecution we face, give us boldness to share the gospel. And then they asked for his glory to be known. See, we are a royal priesthood that exists for the proclamation of the gospel and for his glory. So Peter's reminding the church in Asia Minor in this letter 
that Christians will endure suffering. Jesus is not looking for mere believers. Jesus has called those who believe in him to serve him and to follow him and obey him and even to take up their own, to cro- their own cross. And then he says, follow me. But when we take up our cross and follow our suffering Savior, we will endure suffering and persecution as the Lord's royal priesthood. So Paul is reminding the church, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God's people receive mercy to show mercy, God's mercy to the world. We are a people of his own possession. We may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. The church exists to proclaim God's glory. Now, as we enter into our, what we call our time of response, if you've never repented of your sins and placed saving faith in Jesus Christ, I'd ask you to spend this time crying out to the Lord. Ask Him to reveal Himself to you in your desperate need for Him. If you've never known what it's like to be declared precious and valuable, cry out to the Lord. If you know that the world is broken, things aren't right, you're not right, you're ashamed of what you've done, your sin, call out to Him, repent of your sin, and place saving faith in Jesus Christ. If this is you this morning, we have a response area with counselors in the back. You go out these doors, take a left. You can come up here, make this an altar. Someone will come meet you here. For those of you who are in Christ, take time to think about what it means to be the royal priesthood. Have you ever thought about that? Take time in your seat and and just kind of evaluate yourself. Am I being bold proclaiming the gospel? Do I see my life as one on mission for God? Am I one that boldly proclaims the gospel in the face of persecution? Or am I more like Peter who ran in fear and denied his Savior? And can I be honest with you? That's me. Praying the Lord changes my heart in that. That I live my every day on mission for God along with the rest of us because he's called the church as a whole corporately to be the royal priesthood not just one or two or three people he's called us together to be united to have one common goal one common purpose for our one common savior will you pray with me heavenly father lord we come to you in the name of jesus Lord, thank you for choosing us, for loving us, for shaping us into precious stones for your purpose and for your glory. Lord, thank you for allowing us and blessing us to be your royal priesthood, to declare your glory to a lost world. Lord, please forgive me. Lord, often I run and I'm ashamed and I don't share the gospel because I fear the bad things people may say about me. Lord, please look at our situation and the the soft persecution that we 
see here in East Tennessee in the United States, Lord. Please take that in regard. We're not asking you to take this away. But Lord, give us boldness. Please give us boldness in this, that we will boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel. Will you be glorified in our proclamation of the gospel? Where we can't do this left to ourselves. Without you as the foundation, this whole thing comes crashing down. Lord, just as you have sovereignly saved us and you're sovereignly keeping us, please change our hearts and give us boldness and opportunities to share your glory. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.